0: The US is tiptoeing its way out of a year of COVID lockdowns and Black Lives Matter protests. There's an unclear road ahead, but that's the path we're choosing in our podcast series, Rebuilding America. I'm Stephen Horne, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge. In this episode, we want to focus on healing America's communities and why the U.S. seems to have lost faith in its institutions and what has to happen to rebuild that trust. We examine the systemic challenges facing America today and ask what needs to be done to truly build back better. Holly Russon Gilman is a policy expert at New America, a think tank that aims to confront the challenges caused by rapid social and technological change. Hawaii Foundation Fellow at Columbia World Projects, and recent co author of Civic Power Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis. Holly, thanks for joining.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour. So Holly, you
0: write a lot and you talk a lot about uh, a trust deficit. You know, if you're looking at things as they are now in 2021, hopefully coming out of this uh, pandemic, how would you categorise that trust deficit today?
1: That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think globally we have seen a decline of trust in traditional institutional forms, right? Um a decline in religious membership, decline of trust in government worldwide. And you see this as a phenomena. You know, it was interesting. I was just looking at some data about trust, at least in the U.S., and there was a moment in May of 2020 where trust was higher in government. And I think there was a hope that government was going to be really responsive to the COVID-19 crisis. And then pretty soon after that trust plummeted. And so I think, you know, we are really in this moment of a trust deficit, which opens up these questions around how do we really, in some cases, reimagine new what these institutional forms should look like. And at least in the U.S., how do we actually build a multiracial, multiethnic democracy, which is something that we've never seen before.
0: You also talk about a two-way trust deficit. What do you mean by that?
1: A really, that's a really good question. You know, I think the, the two-way in my mind is that people in communities can be mistrustful of the people who are in positions of power to make decisions about policy. And then people in those decisions of power can be mistrustful of the people in communities. And there is a concern about opening up the Pandora's box of civic engagement or civic participation for fear that there will be criticism and critique and you will be constantly um, not meeting people's expectations. I call it the going into the restaurant and looking for the rats theory. <laughs> And so if you have that and if people feel, well, I'm defensive, I don't want to let people in and only look at my rats, you're only creating a negative feedback loop to fuel this trust. And if you're in communities where there has been systemic racism, you know, decades and decades of policies that were targeted to specific communities in detrimental ways, They are going to be very mistrustful when people come in and say, well, this time it's going to be different, when they don't have any evidence in the past to support that. So for me, the opportunity is really what I call building hooks and levers, where you're creating more positive feedback loops between people rooted in their communities and people in decision-making authority. It's really challenging, and I think it takes courage on both sides of the equation. And it requires really being thoughtful and intentional about how we're engaging people, what the processes look like. So people feel safe, they feel heard, they feel like they have a sense of agency and dignity. But it also requires, I think, you know, a willingness to be transparent, especially when I look at, you know, people in powers of decision and to say what's possible and what's not possible. Right. It can cause tensions, but I think those can be healthy tensions.
0: You know, you raise a really interesting point there about a lot of these issues being systemic. And yet, you know, if we switch on any form of media at the moment, you know, it's it's so, you know, it's almost like we've got two tribes fighting against each other. And and how much do you think this distrust at the moment is caused by some of those systemic issues? And how much is it you think we're coming out of the last presidency? How much of this is down to... You know, not just President Trump, but other populist leaders around the world. How much of that is it because of that, and how much of it is because, uh, you know, it is systemic?
1: Wow, these are all the hard-hitting questions, Stephen. I mean. <laughs> Look, these are really important questions, and it really underscores the complexity of this moment in a lot of ways, right? So I think you have these systemic issues that are really, I think, a foundation of what's happening. And so when I look at at least the election of President Trump in the United States, to me, you know... He's a symptom, but not a cause, of these deeper structural inequities and real challenges to our democracy. You sort of begin, they're sort of blocks of a a house. (laughs) You begin with a foundation of that, and then you add in a hyper-polarized media environment and a social media structure which really benefits the loudest voices, really amplifies sort of viral content that is not about the nuances in conflict or about bringing people together to try to find any common ground, but really about furthering us. And then there is the reality that so many of these institutions are sclerotic, are not agile, are weak and brittle, and they're not really flexible to adapt to the realities of 21st century governance. And so when you kind of add all that together, you see really quickly how this is a very perfect storm.
0: But you talk a lot about uh, building back better, and you talk about governing, you know, with uh, governance, you know, with people as opposed to governance to people. And we've obviously got uh, a new administration in place. So so, so, when you talk about building back better, what do you mean? How, where do we, you know, we have to recognize where we are, if you like, and we, we need to move forward. How, how do we move forward from here?
1: Great question. Right. For me, it's about how do we really maybe take some of the lessons of this past year, the calls for racial justice, the you know, people coming together in their communities after COVID-19 to help one another, to problem solve, whether, you know, mutual aid networks popping up or people just sort of being really agile. I saw many local officials in the United States, for example, you know, the head of a parks and rec department in one city who became the person who would drive around giving out meals to people early in the pandemic because she was a trusted intermediary. And so I think the question is, how do we tap into that knowledge and energy on the local level and kind of scale it up? and create models of governance which are giving people a seat at the table and so i think models like participatory budgeting can be very illustrative and effective here they you know it's a process that started in porto alegre brazil in 1989 where you actually are giving residents part of public dollars to determine how they will spend it. And it's done sort of in collaboration with the government because the government has to say, we're going to give some of this money back to the very people who elected us in charge to decide. And what you see is that it's an opportunity to engage people in the political process in new ways. In the U.S., it's been very effective at engaging young people, people of color, recently incarcerated people, non-citizens, so really widening the aperture of who participates, but not just who participates, but how they participate. And this is not limited to a model like participatory budgeting, but are there more creative ways that people can be a part of their civic and social life and their civic and social fabric and discourse? That to me is the opportunity, but kind of coming full circle to the beginning of our conversation, it has to be done where there is some power being given to people. It can't just be lip service. It can't just be another you know, nice PR campaign that we do. Because going back to your other point around this sort of distrust of institutions, this populist moment, people know when they're being spoken to in a way that is not legitimate. They will smell if it is fake right away. So if we're going to do a process to engage people in their community, There has to be some real power given to communities.
0: One of the things that you've been heavily engaged in, you know, through your work and through your uh, writings is you often talk about digital uh, tools, if you like, to uh, broaden this participatory democracy. Give us a flavor of some of the uh, digital initiatives you think uh, can help with this.
1: It's a great question. I think there is a real learning opportunity after COVID to think about, where and how people were able to engage digitally, where were barriers to engagement able to be reduced. So I've talked to so many cities around the United States who said, you know, for four years, we tried to hold online public meetings and we were told by the lawyers that we could not. And four days, when COVID hit, we saw governors around the country suspend these sort of archaic rules that are on the books that prevent people from gathering online. And so- now that, you know, we're opening up really quickly in the United States, can we sort of augment in-person traditional engagement with what we've learned as ways that people want to engage digitally. And to me, it's not a zero-sum game. It's clear that we need to have both. You know, we're seeing right now in communities people going door-to-door and saying, you know, have you gotten vaccinated? And if you are concerned about the vaccine, you know, here's a trusted interlocutor, here's a face, here's someone to actually engage with you in a thoughtful way. You know, I don't think that is going to be as effective digitally. And so I think it's about figuring out where are the opportunities, where we need to do something in person, and that's the best way to do it. And then figuring out where can we do it, augmenting with digital tools, and how can they work together? And that being said, anytime you're thinking from sort of a a public sector, how do we engage with digital tools, we have to be cognizant of recreating digital divides, and where are there further inequities? You saw this, you know, early with the pandemic, where, You know moving to online education well that was really problematic if people don't have broadband they don't have the hardware the software or the data literacy skills at home so we have to just really be thoughtful and intentional of you know every time you're reducing a barrier you're also adding another barrier and making something you know that taps into a structural inequality
0: I kind of love the point that you were making about, uh, you know, about people participating at the local level and, and the fact I completely see what you say when you say that uh, people need to see, uh, you know, need to see something come out of that. You know, this isn't just asking people their opinion. You've got to be able to show that there is a real benefit for uh, participating. And and you've got to forgive me with for this one because but I have two pictures in my mind here. You know, I have that picture, which I can see is really positive, and I have... Seventy million people who might have still voted for uh, President Trump, who think the election was was rigged, you know. And it's kind of my question really is, how do you how do you bridge that divide? How do you kind of, you know, how do you stop just both sides just talking to each other here? How how do you actually get people to work together on this one?
1: Well, if you can figure it out, Stephen, will you let everyone else know? <laughs> 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 it's, it's a real question. And it's one that I am actively thinking about. And um, one of the initiatives that I am in is part of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences put out a report called um, Our Common Good. And one of the recommendations was to create a national trust for civic infrastructure that would support exactly the work that you just outlined, creating opportunities and spaces for bridging for civic infrastructure in our communities. And so I think that is really one of the the real things that I am thinking a lot about in this moment. I do think it starts with an investment in places that we have historically underinvested in and places that we've taken for granted. I'll right. give you an example. In many places, there is no public community room that you can rent for free. And it's in part because you're seeing libraries, you know, having declining revenue and shrinking budgets. So what would it take to invest in those spaces and invest in the right way? Like, right? what's the right thing to invest in? Is it the coffee and donuts? Because that's why people are really coming. Is it the child care? You know, I think these are just some of the things that I've been thinking about and who are those kind of catalytic leaders in communities who can kind of bring people together from both sides of the aisle, but then also have, right as you're saying, a way to tap them into something that is constructive, something that will lead to some kind of an outcome. So I think this is a real question, but I I think it requires looking at the places where you've historically seen people coming together in communities and thinking about where have we been chronically underinvesting, and why, and how can we maybe remedy that?
0: Well, my last question would be, as I say, looking forward, do you think And I think perhaps you do, but do you think that COVID actually gives us an opportunity here? You know, because a lot of the rules have been rewritten now. And and does this actually, you know, it shone a light on a lot of things that a lot of inequalities that uh, are very uncomfortable. But does this actually give us a chance now to to rebuild uh, better?
1: You know, I'm always hesitant because... I think when we've seen such a loss of life and such destruction, I think at least in the U S like we haven't even begun the process of mourning. And right. you know, I think maybe this is a stereotype that people over the pond would say about us, but our memories are very short, <laughs> you know, and I, I really don't want us to say, you know, paint with a broad brush. It's all fixed lesson learned because, you know, it really, the magnitude of human suffering and the toll that COVID took, especially on communities of color in the U.S., is so real and it's so visceral. And so I think, can we hold that in our mind and then say, you know, we really want to learn the lessons to not have this happen again. And that requires a real holistic rethink of our civic, social, body politic, our health systems, the way government operates. So I think, I'm open to that, but I also want to be really, really sensitive that we really need to also mourn what was lost and really try to understand these failures of processes across so many levels of institutions and governance that come right back to these challenges around trust. And they're so integral and there's going to be more pandemics in my lifetime, unfortunately, you know, God forbid that I think that's the reality. And so what does it mean to really have resilient communities that are very thoughtful and are more resilient for these next threats.
0: Well, Holly, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and for uh, sharing those thoughts with us. It, that was fantastic. So thank you very much.
1: It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your thoughtful engagement with uh, my work and all of these topics. I'm a big fan. So thank you.
0: Let's continue our theme now of confronting these systemic challenges as we work to rebuild our society. I'm now joined by Garth Dallas from Liverpool, who advises companies on both sides of the Atlantic on sustainability. We started our conversation with the role business needs to play. Well, Garth, first of all, thanks again for uh, joining us. It's a, a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. So thank you.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having
0: me. Uh, let's, let's kick off. I, I've heard you speak and you've uh, talked before about business being a uh, a force for good or potentially a force for good. And we're coming out of this period now in all Western democracies, in America in particular, where, uh, you know, we've had COVID and uh, we've had Black Lives Matter. And how big a role do you think that uh, business actually has in the rebuilding of trusting communities, the rebuilding of America,
2: if you like? Well, I think it has quite a lot to do with the society that we want to live in. So, you know, my focus around the role that business plays or should play has to do with what role businesses play in society. And um, it depends on the society that we are talking about. And what COVID has shown over the last 18 or so months is that um, our society was broken and the whole neoliberal thinking around maximizing profit at all cost has completely being exposed as being not fit for purpose in terms of the society that we want to live in. It's all about making sure that you're satisfying your full stakeholder value, which is not just your shareholders, your communities, your people and the planet. So when I talk about business being a force for Good, it is mirroring the fact that um, today's society is, in order to be sustainable, in order to be equitable, in order to talk about building back better and levelling up and all the various narratives which are being used across the world, we have to make sure that business units understand the role that they also have to play in such a society as much as governments have a role to play, local governments, you name it but businesses have a crucial role to play because they supply the goods and services that that we need in a society to be sustainable. They employ people in those businesses who are part of a society. So yes, business need to stand up, understand its role and understand the importance of ensuring that it looks after its responsibilities to people and the planet. So uh, there's a lot of talk
0: about the role of small business, you know, here in, in, in America, in lots of places, a lot of talk about the role of small uh, business. But why are so many small businesses, How? why are so few small businesses um, black owned? Why is that? And what do we do about it? Because if we don't do something about it, then we're not reflecting the society that we serve, are we? That is absolutely correct.
2: And um, the answer to that question is probably a whole um, lecture and conference um, on its own. But I will try and simplify it as best as I can um, for the sake of um, this podcast. Systemic racism is a phenomena which we all have to confront. We all have to understand that the only way we're going to get rid of racism or make improvements in the problems that racism has caused over many, many decades is if we are mature enough to have a mature, open conversation about racism. The US experience is somewhat different to the UK experience, but we do know that in the US to answer your uh question about small business and why there aren't that many small businesses that are owned by black people is over the years the racism the rampant racism and the policies that go with that we talk about systemic racism we're not here talking about just you know individuals we're talking about systems in place which are not necessarily geared towards attracting Number one, um, black people into entrepreneurship, but even before that, to provide them with the skills necessary to be able to consider entrepreneurship as a career path. And even when they do consider entrepreneurship or setting up their own business they don't have the support structures in place for those businesses to be sustainable so you know um one two year and they're out of business and they're operating within the parallel economy and all of that stuff so i would certainly say that it is because there isn't a understanding of the role the massive role that empowering, and you may need to put in place positive action. We talk about positive action here from the perspective where it is a, a means by which you redress an imbalance. It's not positive discrimination. I'm going from a UK um, legal perspective here. It's not about discrimination. It's about putting in place positive action in order to redress an imbalance. And if you empower more individuals within the black communities to Operate their own businesses, it has a knock on effect in society in general. It will ensure that they provide more employment within their communities. It will ensure that they provide more social corporate responsibility projects within their communities. It has a knock on effect on crime rates. It has a knock on effect on individuals' whole sense of being and sense of belonging within a community so it is a long-standing problem and i will consistently say that um, until we address the the sin you know the real cause not the symptoms right it's not about um you know uh, neo-nazis we need to look at the real cause and not just address the symptoms when they appear every now and again those
0: are fascinating points i've got to come back to you on this one which is that i wouldn't who would disagree with uh, what you say but how do we actually get this done because you know this is not a new problem this is this has been a problem that's been with us you know uh hundreds of years so so how do we make this change and how do we empower black people within the community to to run and to grow successful businesses and, and you were talking about positive action but it's about giving people the same chances that everybody's got
2: right so how how do we actually Do that? When when I say positive action, I need to emphasize there's a difference between equality and equality of opportunities. And when you talk about equality of opportunities, you've got to understand that leveling the playing field doesn't necessarily mean that everyone should be treated exactly the same way. It's ensuring that whatever the Hmm. systemic problems are would require that you put in place more resources to get a particular group to go beyond the problems they've had in the past. So. This narrative is quite important, Stephen, because when we speak on platforms nationally and globally about positive action, it is criticised as us saying that one group should be treated more favourably than others. It's quite the opposite. It's understanding that some people are starting from a minus five, so in order to get them up to one... You have to put in place more resources than someone who's starting at zero who needs to get to one.
0: But what sort of resources do we need to put in place? I guess my my question is, what action do
2: we need to take? What do we need to do? Education, 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 education. I have consistently said that. If you ensure that um, young people get into the education system are looked after and given the opportunities to learn and to learn in an environment that is conducive for learning and to ensure that they progress and not lose them in the system because of other attractions outside. If you look after the education system and make sure that teachers are culturally aware when they're teaching pupils, then that is the first place to start. I can give you many examples where, you know, uh, we've had interactions here in the UK where a bunch of um, black boys in the corridor in a school are automatically seen as a bunch of hoodlums and considered it threat just because of the way they walk and the way they look within the corridors of the school system. So that has led to disproportionate amount of expulsions of young black boys in the education system, which then leads to underachievement. And we have many, many um, examples of where education has failed. And if we start with Educating our young people properly and progressing them, then it's a good place to start. Can I, can I just
0: pick up uh, that point as well? Because uh, one of the other things I've heard you uh, talk about is this really how, do, how does any organization become anti racist? How does uh, an organization, if you like, consider itself? And, and, and what measures does it take to not be a racist organisation?
2: What I've always said in my experience of working with corporates around diverse inclusion and equity and a sense of belonging is that um, the fish rots from the head. You cannot put in place a diverse and inclusion strategy that is not led by the owners, right. the CEO of the company. You have to have senior level management buying, diversity and inclusion can no longer be seen as a HR function. So that whole strategy within the organization has to include measurable measurable actions that the company is going to do and report on with CEO buying. Yes, the second pillar is to make sure that your human resource department is looked after properly. When we talk about human resource here, we're talking about how you recruit, how you retain, and how you upskill your workforce, your employees. So, Make sure you have proper policies in place, but not just policies. Make sure that your staff well-being is taken care of. COVID has shown that. You know, people were worried, you know, um, if you furlough your staff, will they be able to continue to work and produce? They've shown that the companies that have continued to do well are those that looked after their staff, look after their people. You look after your people, they look after your customers. They look after your customers, you look after your bottom line. It's as simple as that. So you look after your people. The third pillar that I always talk about is how you engage with your suppliers. Make sure that your suppliers are bought into the purpose of your organization. Do a supply mapping of your supply chain to ensure that they also fit into that purpose that your organization is about ensuring that you are equitable and fourthly is how you deal with your community and it's not about the old-fashioned corporate social responsibility where you go out and paint a school and feel that you have done well because you have painted a school in your community it's about engaging with your community in a substantive way because they are your customers. If you put those four together in a comprehensive strategy for an organization, you will start to see that your organization is taking steps towards becoming a responsible organization from a diverse inclusion perspective. But guess what? It's hard work. I don't want any organization to believe that it's a quick fix and they start, they're not seeing the results and then they turn back. It takes commitment but it is worth it in the long run, because millennials now are looking at an organization and determining whether or not they want to work in that organization based on their reputation, based on their purpose. So if you 're not attracting the best talent out there, your organization is not going to be sustainable, and that's the language that we use. It makes business sense if you want your organization to be competitive going forward. So so a
0: couple more questions for you. So to what extent do you think the Black Lives Matter uh, movement marches, to what extent do you think that they will have given a fresh impetus to the diversity uh, agenda? Perhaps they've energised
2: the diversity agenda or, or not? It certainly has energised. The fact is that it is the largest civil rights movement in the US ever, And it has uh, certainly drawn attention to how I started this conversation that we need to have an open discussion about race. So from that perspective, it has energised society to understanding that at the end of the day, wrong is wrong. No one should be treated that way simply because of the color of their skin. Corporates have made lots of promises around that and have looked inward and tried to put in place policies to, to show that they are committed to uh, playing a role in ensuring that black lives do matter. So from the perspective of certainly energized, I fear though that it, it will, if not addressed properly, be just one of those papering over the cracks moment where people make commitments or organisations make commitment, but there is no way of measuring whether or not those commitments have been carried through and fulfilled within their organisation. So, yes, it's only been a couple of weeks ago that um, was the anniversary for last week, anniversary of um, George Floyd. That One thing is for sure, the movement is global and a lot of individuals are now empowered within their own organization to talk about race. From a black perspective, I know a lot of black people who beforehand were shy and scared to have their voices heard within their organization or within society, have now been empowered to express themselves. And long may that continue because we want this to be something that we can look back on and say, yes, that was a seminal moment and things have got better as a result.
0: So I've got one final question for you, uh, Guth. Now, I know you've just uh, co-organised a summit, a uh, US-UK summit on race. What were some of the takeaways from uh, that meeting? The reason why that
2: summit was held is because there are so many... We talk about the special relationship between the US and the UK. We understand that, you know, there are a lot of um, issues that happen in the US that sooner or later becomes a reality in the UK. Black Lives Matter was one of such uh, movements that gained momentum in the UK. But we didn't want this to be right. solutions in silos, if you like. We wanted to see if we can have a global uh, summit to look at similarities and differences within the various experiences and the takeaway from the seminar which was quite successful if you like we had about 250 people on the seminar on the summit, We had about eight different countries represented. Uh, We had speakers from the UK and the US. And we just explored issues around just the way we talk about, in the UK, we talk about BAME, Black and Ethnic Minority um, Individual. Um, In the US, it's about Black and Brown, which brings in the Hispanics and all of that. So we're looking to see what the similarities are, what the differences are, and how we can feed into policy at a government level to say that these are the findings, these are what the people, not just the professionals that are diverse inclusion practitioners, but the people in society, these are the solutions that they're looking for based on the problems they have highlighted. And we were inundated with problems, but we were also inundated with solutions or possible solutions. And out of that has Come the recognition from the delegates, based on a poll, that they don't want this to be a one-off. So we have planned a second um, mini-summit in August, and we will be doing another one in October to coincide with Black History Month in the UK. Now, those are the two follow-ups that have been organised. We more than likely will be doing another summit in February to coincide with the US Black History Month as well.
0: Thanks ever so much indeed for uh, joining us. We really appreciate your insight. It's been great to chat to you. So thanks again.
2: Thank you very much, Stephen, for
0: having me. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you, Garth. There is more to come and we invite you to tune in to the next episode in this Rebuilding America podcast series, where I cover gun violence and the proposed solutions from both victim and research groups. Thank you for listening. I'm Stephen Horn.